Today, let's talk about this year and a few decades leading up to it. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So when I say I want to talk about this year, I mean 2024. Uh, And I'm not picking it out now because of the new year. It's not like a New Year's episode. Uh, But because we are now into it, back at work or back in the routine of normal expectations and anticipation of what's going to happen in this coming year. And as we approach those things, you know, I mean, I think it's normal to sort of think, I wonder what this year will bring. I wonder what it will be like when we're celebrating Christmas at the end of 2024 in the way we just finished doing at the end of 2023. And so in thinking about that, uh, I, uh, in my own mind, immediately sort of journeyed back in 10-year increments. And, you know, you'll have to pardon me for the personal nature of this, but it's because 10 years ago, I became the president at Criswell College. And that was a big, that was a big change uh, for me and for a lot of people. And so in thinking about those 10 years, then I realized, oh, well, it was just exactly 10 years before that that I became a professor at Criswell College, which was a very significant change for me. And so I was sort of in this mindset of decades and thinking, man, a lot has changed since 2004. In 2004, I didn't even have an iPhone. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. Of course, nobody did. But anyway, the point is, a lot has changed in these last few decades. And so I thought, well, why not just go back through the decades on the fours of the decades, because it's 2024. (laughs) I get it. Anyway, 2014, you know, 2004, 1994, and so on, uh, all the way back to 19. And I so I first, this is, this is so selfish, I first picked 1964 because that's the year after I was born. That was the first four that I encountered, right, as a one-year-old. And I wasn't even, you know, I, I wouldn't have been aware of anything. I was one year old. Uh, but uh, that, <laughs> then I realized how, you know, how solipsistic that is. That's uh, the world began to exist when I began to exist in 1963. So out of... Uh, humility, extreme humility and self-awareness. I selected at least one decade before that, so 1954. And actually, it worked out quite well because this random website, 24-7 Wall Street, has a series called uh, The Biggest News Stories of Every Year Since 1950. That's when they began. And so it's like, hey, that works out quite conveniently. I'll just pick their news story, the one they pick out from every year. And they do every year, 1950, 51, 52, you get the point. And I just picked out the 54 and 64 and 74 years so that we could do one decade uh, each time just to kind of see where we've been and where we are now in contrast with 2024. 
So part of this is based on that, just picking the news story that was most prominent during that year. And obviously, that's a subjective measurement. That's why it's helpful for me just to lean on the website and say, what did they think was the most uh, significant or impactful story of that year? But the other part of this is purely subjective. It's just me. What do I remember from those experiences? Now, obviously, I don't remember anything from 1954 or 64, but I do in the sense that by 1967, 68, you know, I was I was aware of what was going on in the world, and I was paying attention to things and cared about the things that I heard on the news or on the radio when we were driving in the car and things like that. And so I, I, I do have a personal investment in some of the things that I'll talk about regarding 1964 and on. 1954, I just know because of the history that goes with it. But so, I'm, so again, I'm not, I'm not saying this is universal or this is the way everybody would think about it. But based on my background and experience and then the website selection of the most important news story of those years, uh, here's my sort of journey from 1954 to 2024. A way for us to think about this year and the things that will happen in it based on the previous decades and the things that have happened in them. So we start in 1954. Uh, and I, you know, I would not have rem- I would not have known that this was the year. I'm not, I, I don't have a juris doctor. I'm not focused on law enough to know the year that these major judgments were determined by the Supreme Court or handed down by the Supreme Court. But in 1954, it was a no-brainer, Brown versus Board of Education. And it's not hard to recognize how transformative uh, that uh, judgment, that judgment itself was. So it's transformative, but it's also... Uh, in and and in me looking back on it as a person who's read history and is aware of a lot of things that were happening at the same time, just like you have, uh, it was representative of a lot of progress happening everywhere in the 1950s and in an abundance of different ways. And there's a lot of that transformation and progress going on, obviously, before the 1950s as well. And a lot of that comes to a I don't know the right word for this. I mean, I was going to say head, but it's not. It doesn't erupt into something that concludes some state of progress, but it does emerge into maybe its most solidified form uh, during the 1950s in terms of the confidence that Americans particularly express toward, and, and, and again, I'm not saying everybody represents the same kind of confidence, But as a culture, we had a weird uh, uh, level of confidence in government and state and industry and the economy and even our military. You know, it was unstoppable. We had won World War II and the industrial development that emerged from that in the 1950s and the development of ARPANET and all of the things that were going on in the creative and research scientific side of U.S. government work and military work, but then that uh, bleeding into the private sector and the influence it had on American social life and so on. I mean, the confidence looking back on it is just, it's pretty overwhelming. And again, I'm not saying no one was suspicious of it or no one was trying to push back, 
But it was hard to push back when things were that optimistic. I mean, Eisenhower was president through most of that decade. And he's the, you know, there, there's no president. And I, I mentioned this before when I had read the book recently, Eisenhower in Peace and War. And uh, it was, you know, it, it's obviously that prejudices my thinking that re, having read that book. But the level of popularity that he obtained, that he maintained as president, that he could have run in his second term or his first term as a Republican or a Democrat and would have won. In either case, and both parties were begging him to run for them. That's how popular this man was, and that's how strong a leader he was. Eisenhower's presidency is emblematic of something that was going on in the nation that we, I, I, I assume most people are aware of, but maybe, maybe we don't recognize it, of really profound ways, changes that were happening in the way the states related to each other. That is the way our country identified itself or understood itself and the way our country related to other countries as well. That is how our nation worked with other nations because, you know, Eisenhower, we're talking about the rise of the UN and internationalism and a commitment to understanding the United States as part of this international alliance of nations and trying to bring bring peace to the world through that and so on, which, of course, I recognize the irony in the fact that we were also sending military, small military attachments to different parts of the world to secure our own interests. I get all of that. And that's part of Eisenhower's legacy. I mean, on both sides of that, we, we recognize that. My point is that as a country, we were like, you know, looking at pictures of cars that were traveling across the country because we developed the Eisenhower interstate highway system. And, you know, we, of course, it's not finished being built for 40 years until the 1990s. But the idea that you would tie together the entire nation, not just with these small uh, U.S. highways, as we refer to them now, but the interstate highway system with this sense of uniformity and signage and so on, and even in the next decade, how that's converted into a beautification program for the highway system and so on. All of that makes us more of a nation and less to, less of a confederacy of states in the way we'd thought about ourselves before. And you can, you can tell to this day how profound that influence has been on the shape of our nation. I heard uh, somebody I respect tremendously and who I think does understand uh, the way American culture works. I, I could say more than that. I think he understands a lot of the way human nature works and so on. Uh, but he was making the point after one of the recent national elections, federal elections, you know, uh, and all the conflict that came with it and all that kind of stuff. He, he was just making the point that if, if our founding fathers had any sense of how important we think federal elections are, they would be bewildered. They would just think to themselves, why would you care what's going on in Washington, D.C.? I mean, that's just nothing to do with your state. And yet now it has everything to do with our state or our city or our personal lives because we are so much more national now than we were before. The 1950s represented a big shift in the way American popular thought embraced that idea of us as a unified nation tied together and 
all moving forward in a sense of progress that we would never be able to achieve if we weren't all tied together in exactly this way. And in fact, what I find fascinating from 1954, and I'll leave 1954 with this comment, what I find maybe most fascinating about it is how much pushback there is against all of that right now from a lot of the people I'm most around. And so pushback against internationalism. Uh, and in fact, just the idea of internationalism is itself a way of saying you must be a communist. There's something wrong with your way of thinking about the world. We should be nationalistic and only nationalistic and so on, which is itself sort of contradictory to what we would have been before that. But anyway, the point is there's a pushback against internationalism that I think emerged at the level it, it, that it achieved in the 1950s. And then also the pushback against some of the basic goals that came with a more national perspective of our identity as a people and a more international understanding of our role in the world, a pushback against basic goals for moving things like racial relations forward. Because that was one of the things that was emerging in the 1950s, including in the Eisenhower administration, uh, to try to address and resolve some of those uh, crises, which finally, on their own, came to a head in 1964, where we move now. 1964, then, the main story, LBJ's War on Poverty, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, the whole great society emphasis and LBJ having, having taken the reins of power after Kennedy's assassination, uh, all of that, you know, sort of puts a focus on the agenda that he was focused on and bringing to the American people and through Congress. Now, if I were to nuance that, I would have picked the, and, and again, it's different. In the day it's happening, it's different than it is looking back on it historically. But the point is, looking back on it, I would say, uh, 1964, you need to say the, the Civil Rights Act, the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was the thing. We've done an episode recently uh, significantly addressing that Civil Rights Act from 1964 and the implications it's had for us and why we push back against some of that stuff and the complications it's brought to higher education and all that kind of stuff. So we already had that conversation. But, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had profound consequences that have continued to reverberate to this day. So I would definitely pick that. But regardless, whether it's the War on Poverty or the Civil Rights Act of 1964, what's, what's interesting about this one is how huge a change in American society was taking place, you know, in, in seedling form in the 1960s, but then really manifested in the 1970s and following, which I'll get to when we get to 1974 in a few minutes. But, but my point would be to say this, as most of us look back, and, I'm, and, and we're, you know, we're talking decades, so I'm picking 1964's story, but you can imagine, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed because there had been protests and all kinds of actions to sort of force the hand of society at large to address the racial issues of injustice and so on, the voting rights and all of those kinds of things. So... I, that's why I picked the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but I could have picked anything because the 1960s were dominated, as we look back on it historically, by protests on campuses and 
objections to a lot of the things that were, uh, you know, given a free pass in the 1950s. Now in the 1960s, people are rising up and saying, well, we don't trust you with our military. We don't want you uh, to take this uh, approach with us and what you're doing with us, meaning college students in this case, or with those of us who feel rejected and outcast from the society as a whole simply because of our race and so on. So it was just filled with these protest movements and uh, protestations on campus and in the streets and in communities and so on. And despite that focus on protestation, I mean, you can think of, what was it, Timothy Leary, the turn on, tune in, drop out uh, slogan that he had and uh, the album that he put out of talking. I, I've never, I can't even imagine listening to an album of Timothy Leary. I mean, whatever. Anyway, the point is, despite all of those protestations, the 1960s are really surprisingly optimistic. And it's... The thing is, that's not in contrast to the decade having been so filled with reports of protests and so on. Not because they were exaggerated. They weren't exaggerated. It was a, there was a, a huge emphasis on it inside of families. And I, I watched this in my own neighborhood when I was growing up. Inside of families, teenagers were protesting against their parents. And you could see the difference in the style of clothing and the focus of attention on issues and so on between the generations, it was a big deal. I lived through it enough, aware enough to see that it was a big deal. And the thing about the war on poverty or the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is that the very the, the very year before, Kennedy had been murdered. He had been assassinated. And yet, by the end of the decade, we're fulfilling Kennedy's you know, inaugural address when he's talking about going to the moon. We're doing that by 1969, five years later, halfway through this decade that we're talking about, 1964 to 1974. We're, we're participating in the moon landing. And again, I re- so all of us who were alive in 1969 remember the moon landing. It's not a thing that just passed by and then later you thought, oh, yeah, that did happen, didn't it? It dominated our lives, not just for a day, but, and I was, you know, six years old. So I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like I remember all the details of how long it was, but I remember it was the only thing we cared about on the news. It was the only thing we were talking about as a family. And it was the only thing on TV or radio when it was happening. It was, I mean, it was the thing I can, I, I still People say this about the assassination of JFK, that everybody remembers where they were when it happened. I remember the room. This is the one of the few experiences I have that I remember from being six years old or younger when I lived in Crane, Texas, in our little shotgun-type house in Crane, Texas, in a plant outside of an El Paso natural gas uh, facility in a, you know, in a camp that you had for, for people who worked there. I remember the inside of our house. I remember looking at a doorway when I was hearing the words about what it meant that they said the eagle has landed and so on. It was a huge event, and it felt like everybody thought we had conquered the world. That that the you know literally the way graduates talk about it, the world is our oyster. It was like the universe is our oyster. We have pried open the can 
And now all we have to do is see the goods that are inside. We've gone to the moon. We can go anywhere. We can do anything. That's what we believe. That's how optimistic things were. And if you look back at it, you realize that that's how we thought about the great society and civil rights. And again, it's not that there weren't plenty of people who saw the great society as an invasion of communistic and socialistic ideas on American freedoms. And there were some legitimate complaints about that. That's fine. But I am saying we adopted it. You know, we're buying into these programs that are seeing that the world could be better than it is. Whether that's the way to get there or not, different argument, different discussion. I'm not worried about that right now. Just talking about the attitude of the nation as I perceived it and what was going on at the time. And looking back on it, I think this is an accurate description. You know, like it was JFK's program and values that were being re-emphasized and in some ways redefined. I know there was a lot of controversy about JFK, just like there is about every president, except for Eisenhower. Everybody loved Eisenhower, whatever, everybody. Anyway, the point is, when you take all of that into consideration, people were looking at JFK's values after he was assassinated and not living the next decade lamenting his loss, but instead, and there was plenty of that, and it's, and it's, and it's appropriate, but instead focused on realizing the things that he had so optimistically imagined during his candidacy. I'm not trying to lionize JFK. I mean, I know the faults that are there and all of that. I'm saying as a culture, we had this wildly optimistic view of what we could accomplish and where we could go as a nation. And it's, and it's, and again, it's not in spite of all the protests and so on. It's part of the evidence that comes out of those protests that were going on in the 60s. You know, when you can engage in conflict and stay in it, and, I, and I'm not talking about violence. I'm just talking about confronting people with what they don't want to hear. When you can engage in that kind of conflict and stay in it, it has to be a sign of some kind of optimism because you just don't do it. It's not worth the emotional and relational weight, uh, pain that comes with it if you don't believe something's going to change, if you don't believe something's going to improve. So so what that gives evidence of, and I think this is what the protest movement did, and I'm not a big fan of protests. I've, I've done whole shows when I was on the radio instead of podcasting on why I think protest speech has some fundamental ethical problems to it. That is when you're disrupting other people's speeches and so on because it fails the Kantian ethical test. So, you know, I care about issues like that. But it does reveal something optimistic. The protestation gives evidence that there's sufficient hope to make that sustained conflict or discomfort worthwhile. Uh, And we could spend a whole day talking about that reality that people can put up with anything as long as they, and, and I mean any amount of pain or discomfort, anything, as long as they know it's for a purpose. It's, it's shocking what people can go through. So anyway, I think the, 19, uh, the 1964 decade and the decade following it sort of gives evidence of that, uh, a, a wildly optimistic anticipation of what the country could become. And for some people, a view of the country becoming something so utopian, something so wildly different that other people were made very nervous by it and probably justifiably so. And yet that optimism is still there underneath it in the 1960s. Transitionally, but it's still there. 
1974. Uh, this, uh, the prominent story, mm, easy to pick out. I mean, this one, there, there's no, no disagreement to be had. I mean, Nixon resigned in 1974. And again, I was, I was nine years old in 1972 and following. So I, and I kept up with Nixon. Everybody kept up with Nixon. I knew what was going on. I was paying attention to the Watergate hearings leading up to all of this. And in 1974, when Nixon resigned, I was watching the TV like everybody else was watching the TV when he made the statement about himself resigning. And I saw all the adults crying about it. And, I, you know, it was a fear that the nation was losing some sense of stability and continuity because the president, for the first time in the history of the country, and the only time, by the way, since it's not happened again, the, for the only time in the history of the country, was resigning his office. What was going to happen? What, were, what was that going to mean for government? How was it going to function? And so on. And, of course, the transition went fine, and Gerald Ford took over, and everybody ignored him with no problem at all. And I'm overstating that. I mean, we didn't ignore him. We made fun of him for things we shouldn't have made fun of him for, bumping his head on a helicopter and things like that when the man was really a tremendous leader and thinker and, by the way, athlete and Eagle Scout. I know. I think he was the first Eagle Scout to be a president, by the way. Putting all that aside and getting back to the business at hand, the point is Nixon uh, resigned in 1974. And we all know the story of Watergate and, more importantly, the cover-up that followed Watergate and the tapes and the controversy about it and you know, the thing that came from it wasn't just that we had, oh, this one-off of a, a Richard Nixon who happened to lie when he said he wasn't lying and covered things up when he said he wasn't covering things up and so on. It was more a recognition that there'd always been corruption at these higher levels. Um, you know, the whole... Um, the whole, uh, the whole scenario of the newspaper reporting and the journalists who sort of uncovered things that had to be dealt with and all of that uh, forced uh, the American public into a position. And I say forced it, but, you know, we created a narrative that led in this direction, but I don't think it was entirely unjustifiable that there was some serious corruption and abuse of power happening, not just in the Nixon White House and not just in the Nixon political party, but in the American government overall, and there suddenly became this sense of distrust, a rising level of suspicion about political leaders and authorities. And, you know, I, I, all you have to do is just look at the culture today to see how that has persisted. It hasn't gone away at all. So, you know, now as you, as you look back on Richard Nixon, you know, there's a sense of public disgrace with what happened, although some now are looking back at it and trying to say, well, in reality, if the Republicans had just stood by him, he wouldn't have had to resign, and everything would have been fine. Everything wouldn't have been fine. He literally committed a crime in covering those things up, and there was a problem with what the people were doing to begin with in trying to steal secrets from the Democratic Party and so on. I mean, I think there's something wrong with things that are wrong, and we probably ought to be content with saying that. But anyway, I'm just, it's weird to me that people want to redeem that kind of stuff. Let's, you know, it was bad, and it was dealt with, and the redemption of it is that we judged it and that he was removed from office because of it. So there is, 
you know, a, a public disgrace that goes with it, but more importantly, a public rejection of an inherent respect that's to be given to authority figures. And that change, I mean, I experienced it immediately. And again, I was by this time 11 years old. So I'm in fifth grade going into sixth grade. And I, and I, you know, I knew what was going on and it was, it, there was a, you know, I mean, even, in, you know, in, ju- in junior, in elementary school going into junior high school, it's like, yeah, we just don't think of our principal the same way we would have before Nixon resigned. It's just our mentality changed about authority figures. Do you trust that person or not? Well, he's in charge. Well, so was Nixon. And so there was a question about it. And considering the 1960s and the protestations that were going on then against the abuses of power and so on like that, it's not a surprise that the people who were then 17 or 18 or 22 going to college or in high school and staging sit-ins would now be 28 and 30 and willing to stand up and say, yeah, I'm just not going to trust government figures. I'm not going to trust government authorities. And so there was a whole lot of that going on in 1974 and following. And if you consider the effect of that immediately following uh, the Nixon resignation and Ford taking over, and Ford was, you know, a paragon of integrity. I mean, there was there was no question to be had about whether he was going to be transparent. It's one of the reasons he was a great person to fill that role. By the way, I think at that point, and I'm assuming it's still true to this day, it is, I don't have to assume it, he was the only person who was never elected to a national office who became president. He was never elected at the national level because he took over as vice president. He was appointed as vice president uh, after Spiro Agnew was put out, remember. So anyway, the point is, I wasn't trying to get into all that. I just want to make the point that it's not a surprise after all the protestations of the 1960s that you would have a doubt about authority figures in 1974 because Nixon resigns and it turns out he really was corrupt and there really were bad things going on. But what that affected in 1976, I think, was this, and in fact, it revealed itself in this meteoric rise. I know meteors fall, but, you know, they're just so blindingly quick in what they do. So I'm going to call it a meteoric rise in Jimmy Carter's popularity. And I still remember seeing cartoons in the newspaper of rockets going up into space with Jimmy Carter's smile Uh, the only thing you could see on the side of the rocket because that's how fast he was gaining in popularity. Uh, He was so admired because he was just so stinking sincere and transparent. And, you know, he's a peanut farmer. I mean, what could be wrong with a man who's done peanut farming? And so he is, and and again, I'm, you know, I have differences on some of his policies and things like that. But in reality, he may be the most transparent and trustworthy president we've ever had. Maybe. Again, I wouldn't have an argument about it. I'm not a presidential historian. I don't have any expertise in that at all. But just in my lifetime, looking back at it, I mean, the man was so transparent, it was a little embarrassing. The way he greeted international leaders was sometimes embarrassing because it was like it was like your uncle from the farm showing up and sticking out in his hand and hey, welcome, y'all come on in. You know, it wasn't that at all. It wasn't nearly that bad. But I'm saying a lot there was a lot in the press on a repeated basis 
about ways Jimmy Carter embarrassed us because, not because he did anything corrupt or wrong, but because he was just so nice. You know, he was just such a good guy. And that's evident, by the way, in what he's done with his career since he was president. Nobody's had a better post-presidency than Jimmy Carter. I mean, he's been going around building houses for people his entire career. And I, you know, so again, you can disagree with him on some policy issues and stuff like that makes perfect sense. But what were we looking for in 1976? Just somebody honest. Just give us somebody honest. And there is still, despite that, in, and, and this, this was a significant change. And again, I was only fifth, sixth, seventh grade when all this transition was going on. But I mean, in my experience of life, there is a difference between the way anyone thinks of the government now and the way people thought of the government before Nixon resigned. It is just different. And there is a constant, permanent sort of undercurrent of suspicion that goes on with it. And by the way, as a result of what happened with Nixon's resignation, and, and that puts leverage on it because then you sort of lose all your traction for getting people to vote for you. And I, I remember uh, adults in my life, I won't say who because it's not mine to tell their story, but I, adults in my life when I was a kid at that age who voted for Jimmy Carter because they were never going to vote for a Republican again. After they saw what happened in Watergate, after they saw the corruption and the cover-up, and after they saw senators and congressmen try to defend him for the longest time, when they knew what he had done was wrong, they still tried to defend him until the, the tipping point came. And they finally decided they had enough votes that they would impeach him and that they would convict him if he did go to impeachment and so on. Then he finally resigned. My, you know, just adults in my life watched all of that happen and said, I'll never vote for another Republican. I'll never trust another Republican. That was happening all over in the country. And because of that, conservatives as a whole, in, in, as a, in the wake of 1974, had to rethink. Now, again, this is my interpretation, not giving documentation for this, just the way I saw it unfolding. Conservative, and, and let me tell you how committed I was to this. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat something I've said a dozen times before. But it's, it's a marker for what weird stuff was going on in my head when I was a kid. When Jimmy Carter was elected as a Democrat in 1976, I wept because he won instead of us having a conservative in office. That's how conservative I was as a child. And, uh, you know, I, and I was already thinking in terms of debate and things like that. So I cared about policies. They mattered to me. So that's how hard line I was in that world. And yet I knew we had lost. So I was paying attention to what conservatives were doing. And my understanding of it is, my way of interpreting what was happening back then is to say this, the conservatives had to rethink their hook with American voters. Because what would work with Barry Goldwater, where you could just appeal to racism, you could just say, well, they're undermining the institutions of American life and so on. It wasn't going to work anymore because that was the Richard Nixon line. That was the line that people didn't trust anymore, that sounded like corrupt abusers keeping power at any cost and so on. And because of that, whether that's what it was or not, that's how people were sort of caricaturing it. Conservatives had to rethink how they were going to maintain their connection with American voters and what it turned into. 
profoundly was a much greater emphasis on, and conservatism sort of has this two-headed nature, uh, but it turned into a much greater emphasis on the one head, which is libertarian thinking, the libertarian side of things. Well, all we're about is small government and a focus on personal liberty and personal freedoms, and it's not about uh, maintaining all the institutions that we've, all, we've always had. It's about maintaining personal liberties. That's the focus that things started to take, in my, as I look back on it, after 1974, in contrast to what was formerly considered sufficient to keep conservative political momentum, which is the traditionalist kind of conservatism. And a lot of people just don't recognize the difference between the two, but the difference is profound. The traditionalist kind of conservatism is the same thing the Tories had in England. Or if you were in Russia, it's what the czarists were before 1917, before the communist revolution, or what the communists were in 1989, before capitalism gained a foothold in Moscow. And Gorbachev was turning the country over and letting the subsidiaries go through Yeltsin later and so on. If you were a communist in, 1990, in 1989 in Russia, you were a conservative because you wanted to keep the institutions in place that were already there. That's the point, that there's a form of conservatism that's just about maintaining the status quo. And in American conservatism, the pushes against uh, racial reconciliation, against the civil rights movement, and so on like that, they were a part of conservatism because they simply wanted to maintain current institutions. So you wanted segregated schools because we already have segregated schools, and that served us perfectly well. And why do we need to, you know, don't fix it if it ain't broke? And it doesn't seem broke to those who are blessed in it the way it is right now. And that's where conservatives are. That's why that side of the conservative movement is so uh, firmly and thoroughly associated with uh, businessmen and wealth and those who are in power. Because, of course, they're trying. I mean, this is not unreasonable. They're trying to maintain things the way they are. They want things to stay the way they are. That lost a lot of cachet with the American voters in 1974 because there's only a certain amount of corruption you can look at before you realize it's ugly. And in 1974, it was obviously ugly and something had to change. And so the election in 1976 of Jimmy Carter and the revival of conservatism that came with Ronald Reagan four years later in 1980 came because of an appeal to small government, an appeal away from just old traditionalist conservatism. It was still there. It was still embedded in the way conservatism was going to be lived out, but it was much more focused on trying to push against the government. You know, the, the, one of the funniest things Ronald Reagan said during his candidacy was the most terrifying words in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, that line is this transition that I'm talking about, and it comes out in a hundred different ways. So 1974 to 1984, you know, huge decade of transformation in Americans thinking about what the government and state are about and how we're going to relate to them and how we're going to think of ourselves. Now, 1984, here's, here's what I'm going to do, because I realize I, I'm going to need more than one show episode to talk about all these. 
So there are seven decades we're trying to get through, and we've gone through 54, 64, and 74, right? So now we want to pick up in 1984. So let me introduce 1984 to you. First of all, it's interesting, isn't it, that 1984, the big story wasn't George Orwell's realization, right? The, the realization of George Orwell's novel, uh, that Big Brother didn't take over and so on, or maybe some of you think he did, I don't know, that that's not the big story. Seriously, I thought about 1984. What's the big story? Was it the election that was taking place, that Reagan was going to be elected again? Eh, you know, that was sort of a given. He was so popular, uh, and, and again, on both sides, he created this alliance that, that's uh, hard, you know, it's hard to figure out when you look back on it, how many people were supportive of it. I mean, you can figure it out demographically and so on, but it's just amazing that it happened anyway. So no, I mean, that, that wasn't the big story. In 40 years, it hadn't even crossed my mind again. And I've been to India twice, never came up, not in India, not in my conversations with my friends who live in India never even came up. And I would not, and I'm embarrassed. It almost makes me cry to think, why would I not have paid attention to that? The chemical release in Bhopal, India, even me saying it now, I bet, just, I'm not judging you, not condemning you. I'm just saying, I bet some of you are going, what? It was a horrific tragedy with consequences that ride right down to today. And we don't even think about it most of the time. So, so what I want to do uh, next time, when we come back and sort of pick up the second half of this, 1984, 94, well, you can follow the years. I'll let you figure them out. All the way up to 2024 uh, is start in 1984 with that chemical release in Bhopal, India. And what that meant for the way we uh, changed our thoughts about both government and industry and what that sort of means for how we move forward. Now, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just wanting to focus on government and big issues, news issues. What I'm really wanting to do is come back to saying this. What should we look for in 2024? Now, and I'm not, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, nor would I pretend to be. So it's not like that. Well, this is what I think is going to happen. The stock market's going to go this way, and I think the government's going to go that way, and the election's going to turn on this, and it's none of that. But what should we be anticipating? What should we be looking for in 2024? That's where I want us to end up, and I think it's a worthwhile journey to go back through a few decades to arrive back at 2024 and then say, now what about us? So we'll be back for that next time. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. <laughs> Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at berrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.